There's always this, this pregnant pause here, the click when I turn on the PA and moment of anticipation. Will he actually speak? <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, you know, I see this intention to speak arise, pass away. <laughs> Another one comes, passes away. One of these times I'm just going to keep watching them arise and pass away. <laughs> I've, I've joked before it will be a John Cage uh, kind of talk of 45 minutes of ambient sound. And then I'll ring the bell. <laughs> I was just doing some walking meditation before coming in and I, sometimes it's so sweet the simplicity, just the step, it actually is that simple. And and I was highly tempted just to keep doing it. I thought it would be just as valuable in the larger scheme of things than coming in here and anything that I might say. But here I am. These evenings at the last sitting, some of us gather and we chant the Karaniya Metta Sutta, this Buddha's discourse on loving kindness that is to be done. And this is probably one of the most beloved teachings in this tradition. I think it's probably chanted as frequently or more frequently than any other. Probably someone, probably a number of people are chanting that teaching right now in different places in the world. And probably someone has uh, voiced this, given voice to this teaching uh, every day since the, the time, since the time the Buddha gave this, first taught this. Once I was reading a sort of a, an analysis uh, on this Sutta, this teaching that uh, Andy Olensky, who teaches at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies, a Pali scholar, and he described it as a, a jewel sparkling softly but compellingly over the centuries. It's kind of a jewel-like quality because it's it's quite a short teaching compared with many. You know, we some of them are a number of pages. This is just one one short set of phrases, kind of like a, it's kind of, it's kind of like a poem in some ways. It has the form of a poem. One can learn it in the way that one might learn a poem. It's not long, it's a, quite a short thing. And, and it has, it has a, that quality, but it can be, um, it is a teaching and it has a certain way that I think it kind of parallels somewhat parallels the teachings of the Eightfold Noble Path in, in one way that is looked at. I spoke about earlier in the retreat uh, as the teachings or trainings in sila, samadhi, and panya, or in ethical conduct, in uh, mental development, samadhi, concentration, kind of a broad way of saying uh, meditation practices, and wisdom, there's a wisdom teaching We've spoken, I have, and I and my colleagues at different times have spoken about uh, sila, 
this attention to how we're living ethical conduct as not only as, as the kind of the very foundation, the basic underpinnings of the practice, it rests on, on this, but it also, um, it, it doesn't just serve in this way. Sila has this ongoing development, ongoing consideration throughout the path. And the Buddha stressed it so often, all over in the teachings, stressed the importance of this and really in a way pointed to uh, the liberating potential of making this practice, um, making attention to how we're living really important. And um, this is addressed in the first part of this teaching, the Metta Sutta, very directly talks about uh, our conduct. Now, when we chant it at night and when I'm going to uh, go through some of the words of this teaching, I'm using an English translation that was done by the nuns and monks of the Amaravati uh, monastery, the lineage of Ajahn Cha, and then to Ajahn Sumedho in the Thai forest tradition. And it was, it's a good translation. It's not necessarily the best. It's not the most literal because it was um, created to be chanted. But it's quite good and it, it certainly captures the, the basic meanings there, but it's not entirely literal. And the first first few lines of this uh, address this uh, importance of conduct. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech. And kind of simple addressing of how one lives. Later on in this section it says, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Attention to how how they're living, and this is uh, such a such an integral part of that life. This life of simplicity and care with conduct. There's a lovely book called "For a Future to Be Possible." It was um, edited by and and uh, partly written by Thich Nhat Han. He wrote one part and then it's a compilation of of essays and writings from different people. And he spoke uh, in one place in there about Sila. He had a very, I think, beautiful, he often has very beautiful ways of talking about things. He he spoke about Sila in terms of the precepts, um, calling them the five wonderful precepts in that book. And he said this, the five precepts are love itself. To love is to understand protect and bring well-being to the object of our love. The practice of the precepts accomplishes this. We protect ourselves and we protect one another. I I think this is a really beautiful and actually quite powerful way to hold this practice as an expression of loving kindness, you could say, and also as as a protection. It does give us great protection in life. our conduct and the um, sense of blamelessness that may arise from that sense of being able, in in the text, it says one can go into an assembly of any group, any assembly and and feel this quality of blamelessness. It's quite a protection in that. This first part 
uh, first section, the sort of sila section also uh, directly touches and points to um, the renunciate life, the life of simplicity that uh, was practiced by the Buddha and his followers uh, when he was alive and is still practiced by many nuns and monks today and, and in many different traditions, certainly in this Theravada tradition that we we draw on and that, that I am most familiar with having spent time living that lifestyle, that life of simplicity. And in this tradition, it's very, very simple. Um, the monks, monk is a nun, it's kind of a misnomer. These people who live that life are alms mendicants. They are, a mendicant is one who begs. <laughs> We don't like the word beggar. But these people live a, a life where they are dependent every day on offerings for their food, for their basic sustenance, for the food and shelter, medicines, what are called the requisites. They're not allowed to hold food over night. And they're uh, Part of their practice is to not eat after midday, the way some of you are who are undertaking the eight precepts. But unless someone feels moved to offer them food, every day they don't eat. <laughs> That's how they live. There's this um, deep trust and faith in that. And this, um, it's interesting because we so often, you know, we might think of that and say, oh, that doesn't sound too good. and And they have to, they eat what they're offered. And there were days when I was walking on alms round and, and I was a poor village where I was living and I would just get some rice. Some days only rice. Sometimes only, only kind of bad rice. <laughs> you know, the broken up kind, not the whole grains, because that's more expensive. And and there's this, this sense there, there's this being contented, easily satisfied. You know, we tend to think that more choices, you know, you go to the stores, we want not just one kind of a thing, but we have 10 kinds of whatever it is. And we, we, we often think, oh, well, happiness is having more, more choices. But that's, that's better. It brings more contentment. Or, but, but actually, I question that. be interesting to look at that. So this section that, that points to this simplicity and renunciate aspect of their, the lat life, because this was taught to these people who are living this life primarily at that time. These are the words in the teaching, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful not proud and demanding in nature. But these words don't just apply to those who are living this uh, life of, of an alms mendicant, of this kind of um, more real um, renunciate uh, intention in that. There's an encouragement to any one of us towards really looking at how we're living and uh, this movement towards maybe some simplification to a simple life. 
care and mindfulness, how we live, how we use resources, for example, how much do we really need? What do we really need? Our wants and needs is often very confused in our minds and hearts. You know, we're a pretty voracious species. We really want all the good stuff. And we don't leave a lot left for other beings sometimes. You know, in our economic system, so many of them are based on this idea of continual growth of it, as if that were ever possibly sustainable. And you know, then all the while we're fouling the air and water. And we should look at how we're living here because we would never tolerate it on the part of another species. You know, if chipmunks or squirrels were doing this, <laughs> if prairie dogs were pulling this stuff off, we would try to eradicate them as a terrible pest. We wouldn't put up with it. And I don't say this to make anyone feel bad. That's not the point, but it it bears attention because it's so easy for us to see what what we lack, what we don't have. So easy. And there's a whole world of commerce that's, its sole intent is to make us feel like we're in a state of lack. You know, if we just got this thing, we would be happy, whatever it is. But we may take a look and see, what do we really need? When, when we ask the question, what do I need in this moment to feel a sense of contentment, as I was talking about this morning? Maybe that can come from some place other than stuff. The second section of this teaching is, is uh, in this model, following the Eightfold Path model of Sila Samadhi Panya, then I, we would say it's the, the bhavana, the meditation part, the samadhi part. It actually, actually can be seen as a meditation. The, the name of this teaching is the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This word, uh, sutta means discourse or teaching. Metta is metta, loving kindness, friendliness. And the sword karaniya means is a thing that is to be done. Usually it's said the, the discourse on loving kindness which is to be done. So it's not only a description or teaching, but I, I find that actually going through this, these reflections and, and actually for me the doing of the chanting is in itself a practice of loving kindness. and. There's this this um, tradition in so many, you know, in Buddhism and in a lot of many other uh, spiritual traditions, there is this practice of of giving voice through chanting or singing, kinds of singing, devotional singing, different things. And not it's not just the terrain of, of Buddhist practices. It's, it's seen and um, held as, a powerful kind of practice. And I was thinking of this the other night when um, Guy was giving his uh, talk about the five aggregates and remembering in, in some of the monasteries where I've spent time, there was a daily reflection of chanting about seeing these, about the aggregates as being uh, impermanent and not self. It was chanted daily. Uh, and there's something powerful about just bringing these kinds of reflections into the mind in this way. 
not so much in order to think about them or try to persuade yourself that it's true. (laughs) If I say it enough, then I'll believe it. It's not that. But there's something powerful in doing that. This is that section. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium short or small. Let us not leave out the medium ones. (laughs) The majima, the word is majima, like majima nikaya, medium sized. You all look fairly medium sized to me. (laughs) So I'm putting us all in the medium category. (laughs) The seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born, those still to be born. May all beings be at ease. This line is repeated twice. Sabe sata bhavantu sukitata. May all beings have happiness. May they be at ease. This wish that is a so simple wish. May all beings, and this, this inclusive, unconditional quality in that offering in these words there, whatever beings, all the kinds that there might possibly be, no exceptions, visible, invisible, all sizes and shapes. And this is the essence of this quality. This is its potential of uh, development, this complete unconditionality, this pure benevolence, this pure uh, generosity of heart, you could say, just wishes well. And the beauty of that possibility that might be there in any moment when the heart just wishes well, any being. It doesn't ask for anything. It's a pure offering. It's, there's no seeking of self-benefit in that, this unconditionality. It has this possibility because the be- beings are judged as worthy of, of this author offering simply because they are living beings. Sentience is the requirement there. All beings, all us medium-sized folks in this hall are all pre-qualified. All we have to do is be alive. Someone right now is sending metta to all of us. And we don't have to be somehow proven worthy. I want to read a few, few lines from a poem by Mary Oliver called Wild Geese. This is just a, f- a couple of lines, a few lines from that poem. It speaks to this in a, in a s- simple, direct way. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. There's no requirement to prove oneself worthy. And yet we, we put that on ourselves so much, don't we? We hold ourselves as unworthy, as not okay. The next part of this section, it shifts a little bit away maybe from, from a direct kind of practice of this simple offering. And, and there's maybe a more of a 
sort of a commentary perhaps, or, or a, a looking at certain attitudes and quality in the mind and heart that are important when we're cultivating this, that are part of what, what is uh, generated there. Or some of the, the images that kind of illustrate how this, uh, this quality of simple friendliness might, might manifest in the heart and the mind. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, Whenever free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. I've talked, often people bring up this, this image of, of the mother and child, which is, is quite beautiful, but can really bring up a lot for people who did not have that that was not their experience, was a mother protecting the child. So we, perhaps it, it, we should amend it as a good mother, a real mother would protect her child. But the, there's a lot of images of this, uh, the care of a, of a good mother, different ones. There's a, often there's an image of, of a cow with her newborn calf. We don't live in the kind of agrarian society where cows and calves were around a lot to look at. It was more at the time of the Buddha. One time I was living in, the, the li- in, in monk's robes uh, in an area in Upper Burma that I've mentioned where, that I love in the Sagang Hills. And I was, I was living in a very small uh, monastery back in the hills, Vihara in the hills, and um, living in a, in a cave there, a, a nice cave, <laughs> kind of a pukka cave. It even had indoor plumbing of a sort, <laughs> quite spacious, even had a little upstairs kind of balcony, <laughs> but it was a cave nevertheless. <laughs> and I would walk down to the town of Wachet for my morning alms food. And uh, one time I was walking, I would do the same route and it was so sweet, all of this trickling of different uh, bhikkhus from th- out of the hills converging like little streams to this larger <laughs> road. The simplicity of it, you have to go barefoot. You can't, can't wear anything on your feet when you go on alms round. It wasn't easy for a tenderfoot like me at times. <laughs> but I came around the corner once and there was a, a cow with a brand new calf that was just adjusted up and you could see how wobbly it was and the, the mother was bathing it, cleaning, uh, cleaning it up from just, you know, within the last hour or two it had taken birth there. And the sense of the care of the mother cow for her calf, bathing, bathing it, caring for it so directly and with such a, this just natural care that can be there reminded me of a story one of my friends, a colleague, told once of being in, um, in Nepal uh, with her son and they had gone 
in, in the town of Pokhara, which is very near uh, the, uh, the Annapurna area, a beautiful uh, place where the, the mountains, they go up four or five miles right outside town. <laughs> it's incredible there. And she was, they were sitting in a, a street side cafe and uh, there was a, a, a beggar was coming by and he, he had maybe missing lower limbs, was on a kind of a rolling board with wheels pulling along on the road and um, pretty warm day and, and he, he was um, just had on a simple kind of loincloth or simple pair of shorts and at one point uh, had stopped in the road outside where they were sitting and this cow came up and started giving him a bath. <laughs> and he was just like, <laughs> and he was just in this kind of blissful state. And it may be on a hot day, he was like a, a kind of salt lick for the cow <laughs> from, uh, from the, the sweat on the skin. But he was just, there was this sense of, it was like a blessing the way she described it, like a kind of blessing from this cow. This part of the uh, sutta has this um, sense of this boundless, unlimited, you know, it says radiated kindness over the entire world, outward and unbounded in all directions, above and below and all around. A sense of this uh, infinity that one can touch into sometimes in this practice where we can tap into this infinite, there's no edges to what, what is possible with this energy of, of metta. It can sometimes be truly have this boundless sense, boundless quality. There's no holding back of any kind there. And in the last line, it's referred to as one of the, the divine abidings, the Brahma Vihara, divine abodes. This is said to be, in here the translation is sublime. Divine is more a literal, Brahma, godlike. Vihara means a dwelling or a place, an abode, a place one might live. And in any moment when the heart mind is uh, imbued, suffused with this quality, when that is strong, it is like a divine abode for that time. One takes birth in that. There's a, a deep connection, a sense of ease. And then the last part of this sutta, and it always struck me so much because it had such a different uh, feeling, a very different tone in just the last four lines. And in a way it has a connection to, uh, in this model, sila samadipanya, the wisdom the insight and wisdom section, you could say. So here it's, it's a shift away in a certain way and still connected, of course, towards uh, the heart's release, towards liberating insight, wisdom, understanding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. This is how this teaching ends. Pointing to the, the, tr the transcending, liberating possibility of the practice. This reference here to 
the pure-hearted one. And one could say it's talking about one who, who has purified the mind and heart completely of uh, the energies of greed, hatred, and delusion, the, the arahant. One in whom these energies no longer arise, or perhaps if they do arise, they have no power. They have been rendered powerless. But it's not only then, because there are moments when we may be able to touch into this quality of pure-heartedness. Certainly, I know that. In my own experience, there are times when that, that pure-heartedness is right there and very tangible. It doesn't necessarily last. But that does not diminish that reality, that possibility there for any of us in a moment. And in this section, there are some qualities of what this wisdom, some of the um, attributes there. This sense, one by, begins by not holding to, by not clinging to fixed views, not clinging to any view. And the Buddha's, the understanding in these teachings of that is that these, these views are limited fabrications that often do far more to confuse and distort our understanding than bring any kind of clarity. With clarity of vision, they don't lead very often to clarity of vision. They actually lead to stress and struggle in the mind, often, views that we hold. Many examples of this, assumptions that we make about ourselves or about the nature of reality, that we don't even question so often and do not reflect the truth of things. Views that we hold about the kind of person we think we are or what we're capable of that only limit us, that may become self-fulfilling. I can't do this. I'm not good at this. Or views that are so woven into our perception, as I was saying, that they're completely taken for granted, not seen at all. In his talk on the five aggregates as a way of understanding this teaching on anatta, not self, Guy spoke about views. And this view of self where we attribute a kind of solidity or thingness to something that's actually in direct experience is just a process. It's a process of contact and knowing, arising and passing over and over this view there. There's a teaching in the Diganikaya, the Brahmajala Sutta, that uh, is usually translated as the all, the, the teaching on the all-embracing net of views. It's a long discourse where the Buddha talks about all these different kinds of, of views and uh, that uh, get in the way of clear seeing. Sometimes views fall into the realm of, of kind of um, useless speculation or just intellectual turning things over and trying, clinging to some perspective in that or attempting to find one, to land somewhere. And the sutta is on and on. There's this set of four classically, there are four questions. I think it comes out of this kind of debating tradition that was existing in India. And one way, it's, there's one set of them. Does, uh, does the Tathagata, this is the 
the name the Buddha used for himself, does the Tathagata exist after death? Does the Tathagata not exist after death? Does the Tathagata both exist and not exist after death? Does the Tathagata neither exist nor not exist after death? And supplied in many other things. Apparently this was a common kind of debate and people get swirled up in these kinds of speculative things that, that don't go anywhere. And we might see our own version of those kinds of questions where we get caught, I have to decide about something. And it's just turning over some view. I have to, I have to address some, some view, some idea there. There's a fifth question that is not ever listed there is, does it matter at all? And this is what the Buddha pointed, he said, it doesn't matter. (laughs) He never answered those questions because it just, it had nothing to do with suffering and the end of suffering. And that's all he was ever, he said, I only teach this one thing. That's all I care about. Yeah, okay, it's two things, but that's, he didn't, he didn't, he wasn't, he didn't go there because it was not profitable. It didn't lead anywhere useful. It has no bearing on that, on suffering and the end of suffering. What does have a bearing is is the teachings of the Four Noble Truths, which he always came back to. This is suffering, the nature of it, the cause of it, the abandonment of it, the cessation of it, the path that leads to that, this understanding there. And, w- and he saw through that that there's a mistaken view that we, it's very deep, that we've talked about over and over, this mistaken view that, that about what actually leads to happiness. This view that things in the world, transient experiences, that, that these are a, a useful, reliable strategy for finding some kind of real happiness some kind of lasting satisfaction. And it's not that there's something wrong with having pleasant experiences. Sometimes people think it's, it's bad or wrong or you have to be careful not to have a pleasant experience, but it's not about that. We just have to not ask them to do something they're not capable of, not hold them as capable of that. We need to see through the view that they actually work in the long run, any one thing. It's not that there's something wrong, they're great. It's good to have pleasant experiences. We should open to them, enjoy them, and let them go when they go, because they will. This metta practice, actually one of the powers there is that it can uh, point us towards openness to what is sometimes called a non-worldly, non-worldly pleasant experiences, non-worldly kinds of happiness. Happiness is uh, pleasant feelings that are not born of, uh, not directly related to or born of sense contact, of a transient, they're, they're internal. They're born in the mind and the heart. And they're a deeper, ultimately more satisfying happiness, even though they also are not permanent, but they're, they're not tied to this outward movement towards the sense contacts. Metta can help us see through this mistaken view that those things would, would be a, a source of happiness. We let us taste this other kind. They help to turn the mind, turns the mind in that direction. 
There's a number of places in throughout the suttas where the Buddha uh, spoke of the liberation of mind through loving kindness and through the other Brahma-viharas. The liberation of mind through compassion, through gladness, through equanimity. There's one sutta that I love where he spoke, gave this image that shows how this, um, this quality when strong in the mind and heart can uh, ripple forth in, through the world. said, just as if a mighty trumpeter were with little effort to make a proclamation to the four directions. So too, by this liberation of the mind through the development of loving kindness, one sets an example, leaving nothing untouched there, nothing unaffected there. Spreads out and nothing is untouched. All things are touched by that. Uh, a while ago, one of my friend's uh, colleague who um, teaches meditation said that, um, I guess she said she had changed on Facebook her religion to kindness in response and uh, appreciation of the Dalai Lama saying, my religion is very simple, my religion is kindness. And I have to confess, I've never looked at Facebook I don't really know what it is, but I know you can say things there. <laughs> I think it has to do with this sort of selfing <laughs> tendency to <laughs> that Guy spoke about. So she, she, she put her religion down as kindness. The simple statement, the Dalai Lama, my religion is very simple, my religion is kindness. And, you know, we, it's repeated a lot and it can sound sweet and, you know, like, oh, maybe you put it on a greeting card or something and... And the profound understanding gets lost and and overlooked, I think, because of that. If you think of, you know, he uses the word religion. If you think of that as kind of the expression in the world of the deepest kind of spiritual understandings, the deepest kind of spiritual truth, then we might um, get a sense of what he might be saying in making a simple statement like that. Because when the deepest understanding, when the mind and heart are informed by that, then this movement of kindness is just the natural expression. It's the, it's the manifestation in the world, in the relational world of that deepest freedom of mind and heart. That's all that's there. That's what's there. It's an effortless expression. It does not require any effort, it's just, it's just the nature there. In this section, and there's quite a lot there, there's a section that uh, speaks to this abandonment or, or release from the, the energy of craving, freed from all sense desires, this energy that keeps us bound to this endless wandering and search wandering in samsara. And then the final line, is not born again into this world. Such a one is not born again into this world. This, this way of, of pointing to this, this freedom from this endless cycle. And it's appropriate, I think, that the sutta end this way. This is always the thrust of uh, the Buddha's teaching. He's always pointing towards this heart's true release and this way one way of speaking to that. So it's seen as an aspect of this deepest realization and this deepest freedom. 
I don't know if I'll get through all of these in this next part, but it's said in, in the, one of the commentaries that there are 11, 11 classically stated 11 benefits that arise or accrue to one who cultivates uh, loving kindness, you know, and really brings it to perfection. The first three of these have to do with uh, how we sleep and uh, dream and wake up. Um, it's said that one sleeps in comfort. It says one falls asleep as though entering an attainment, an absorption. And one wakes in comfort instead of groaning and yawning <laughs> and turning over. <laughs> one wakes without these kinds of contortions. One wakes like a lotus opening. Are there, we have any lotus opening waking uppers out there? <laughs> Welcoming the, the morning light into your op- lotus opening heart. <laughs> and it said that one is free of uh, difficult evil dreams, only auspicious dreams, dreams as though one is making an offering at a shrine or hearing the Dhamma. These are these kinds of, of images, and they may not, I think, helpful not to take them exactly literally, but, but it's true that as we develop this quality in the mind and heart, there is um, more simplicity and clarity in the, in the mind and the heart, and, and more freedom from uh, the things that might lead to difficult dreams and to sleeping uh, uneasy sleep, free of more of fear and worry that starts to happen and there's more ease there. It extends into these realms, these aspects of life. The next two, it says that one is dear to uh, human beings and to non-human beings. There's some sweet stories there I don't have time to tell you, but um, but it points to this, there's this energy if we extend this energy into the world, it tends to um, draw the same kind of energy back. If we extend metta, it's, it's not that it only will, but it tends to bring metta back, it tends to return to us. So, and when we develop this quality, then beings, human and non-human, that we come into contact with, they, they can feel that uh, we have their welfare in mind, that we're, We'll do our best not to harm them. And we can become a, a kind of place of safety and trustworthiness in the world. Beings know that we want them to be happy and safe. And in this way, one becomes dear to others. Metta is, is considered to be a protection in the, the chanting, the paritta. It's a paritta chant. Parita means blessing or protection. It's one of a group of those. It's said to protect mainly from fear. And these next two blessings have to do. It said one is protected by the devas and that uh, external dangers, it mentions fire and weapons and poisons won't harm you, won't harm one. And we don't have to believe in celestial beings or devas. And to see how there can be a protection there. And it doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen to us. It's not about that, but it's more in, in an internal kind of protection in the way that we relate to the changes that life brings. Because we don't have, we're not given control over all of that and, and things happen, unpredictable things. So it doesn't mean that nothing bad will happen, but it's the protection comes from how we hold those changes, how we relate to the uncertainty 
And the more that we manifest and cultivate this quality in the heart, the more ease and spaciousness is there. And that's a great support and protection for us in life. It lets us navigate these changes that inevitably come with a more ease, balance. It's said that uh, one who develops metta has a mind that is serene and easily concentrated. And these, these feelings, metta is used as concentration practice, but it also tends to bring uh, peace of mind and, and connection that tends, uh, there tend to be a joy and happiness, serenity, these uh, qualities that are said to be uh, the, the proximate cause for the arising of concentration is said to be a, a happy mind, a joyful, serene, happy mind. That's good to bear in mind. Concentration doesn't arise from <coughs> trying to bear down on it. That actually a happy mind is more useful. It's said that one's face will be radiant and serene. It points to a way that the, our inner state does show on the face. It affects, you know, one, what's there in the heart and mind. If one's heart is filled with anger and ill will, it shows. And the same way if one's heart is filled with metta, that shows. And I think of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who just seems to radiate this quality. And people who have no idea who he is are drawn to him. They just see his picture and they want to go be near him. They want to be near that. That inner quality just comes out and people are drawn to that. It's said that one dies peacefully or in an unconfused state. And if you think about it, habitual ways that we have of thinking and acting will tend to be there at the time of our death. will carry over if that's been what we've developed. If we've spent our life feeling separate with feelings of ill will and resistance and alienation from others, if we've cultivated fear and anger, then those are more likely to be present when we die. In the same way, if we have cultivated the heart of friendliness, then that quality is more likely to be there. It's just simple cause and effect in that or tend to end our lives more peacefully if the heart and mind have greater access to those qualities. And the final benefit is said to be that one is reborn in higher realms. And whether or not you have any connection to this sense or idea of rebirth, you can see it in any moment when this quality is, is there present and strong in the mind. It's as though one takes birth into uh, a higher or uh, more Uh, beautiful, easeful realm. One takes birth in that, just in the moment. There's an aspect of loving kindness that I think is is one of the most beautiful and uh, powerful uh, sort of ways that it shows up in, in one's mind, in the heart, and that has to do with this quality of mind. Uh, I don't know if we may have spoken about this, I can't, I can't remember, this quality of bodhicitta, bodhicitta. The word bodhicitta, literally, bodhi is the word for awakened, same root for Buddha. 
And citta is mind or heart, that kind of put together the citta, the awakened mind, literally, that word means. And, and on the sort of conventional relational level, it's this, this heart of compassion moved in the face of suffering, this wish to f- re- alleviate that. In some traditions, there are these vows, of bodhisattva vows, that are related to this bodhicitta, vowing to uh, save all sentient beings from, from suffering, carry them along in this way. On a more, uh, you could say, I mean, you'd say a more ultimate level, this bodhicitta is, is this awakened mind. It's that nature, the nature of the mind. It's, it's the nature. It's not a nature that we have to get and put there. That is the nature. When we get stuff out of the way that keeps us from seeing it, it gets obscured. This is important to always remember. We're not getting something we don't have or going someplace we aren't already at. We're just revealing what's there. Someone today was saying, and there it felt to them like they, they were remembering something they already knew in moments. It felt like just remembering their own goodness, this nature. In the awakened mind, there are no barriers or boundaries to the expression then of care, kindness, compassion. There's no boundary there. You could say in the simplest way, it reflects the understanding that our own happiness and the happiness of others are not different. They're one and the same thing. There is no separation in the mind and heart where there is not the separation of self and other, then it's all one thing. My happiness, your happiness is not different. And so if we hold this, if we can touch into this sense at times, then we can hold our practice with this motivation. May this be for the benefit of others. At the end of the, often at night I say, bring this to mind, this goodness, and offer it. Offer this, dedicate your practice today. Dedicate that goodness. Dedicate the chanting, whatever, for the benefit of others, specific others and for all beings. And when I come and I bow, I bring into my mind words like this, may my life and practice be in service to, may it be for the benefit of of all beings. And when I I first started doing this, I thought it was like an arrogant thing. And, And this voice would say, oh yeah, right, as if, as if that could possibly ever be true or real, but I just would do it anyway. I decided I was gonna make that bring that intention, bring that aspiration into my mind. May my life, my practice be for the benefit of others, for the benefit of all beings. That's what I do when I bow. I bring that into my mind. And I have noticed a shift over time where the voice that tries to say, oh yeah, right, who are you kidding? That has toned down a lot and mostly it doesn't arise so much. Sometimes it's still that, <laughs> a little bit, but it's much quieter and I don't believe it. <laughs> it's just an old habit. It's the voice of Mara, it's not the voice of wisdom. And this, this intention voicing this in, my, in the heart has become a really um, very powerful 
aspect of the practice. And it was something one of my teachers said they were doing and I thought, okay, I'm gonna try doing it. It's been a real interesting practice over many years now. So you might consider that. Got any takers out there? (laughs) Make this aspiration. May this be for the benefit of others. Maybe even know that it is. It is. I have no doubt of that. So I'll end tonight with a few lines from uh, Shantideva and uh, a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. It touches this, this offering and this deep compassion and this quality of bodhicitta. <clears throat> For all those ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself. Raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine, and in the ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. For sentient beings poor and destitute, may I become a treasure ever plentiful, and lie before them closely in their reach a varied source of all they might need. My body thus, and all my goods besides, and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away withholding nothing to bring about the benefit of beings. Like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring like the sky itself endures. For boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. Thus for everything that lives, as far as are the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. Sit quietly and let those words sink in and float away. I'm going to offer a short blessing chant. I sometimes uh, do this at the very end of the night after the metta chanting, but I'll offer it now for you. It's my metta wish for you. Very simple blessing chant. We used to end the day this way in one of the monasteries where I lived. It was a, a good way to end the day. Bhavatu May there be all blessings. Rakantu sabadevata. May the devas protect you. Sabbuddha nubhavena. Sabbadamma nubhavena. Sabbasanga nubhavena. Sadasoti bhavantute. 
by the power of all the Buddhas, all of the Dhamma, and all the Sangha. May you always be happy and safe. Thank you for listening this evening. Time for walking in this beautiful fall evening and chanting at nine. It's a good time, kinda. (laughs) Please come if you have the energy.